Welcome back to Portfolio Rescue, our show where we answer questions from you. We get questions all the time from podcast listeners and YouTube viewers and people who read our blogs. And our email is askcompoundshow at gmail.com. Today's Portfolio Rescue is sponsored by Liftoff, which is our automated investing platform through Betterment. Duncan, are we going to do a video? Yeah. Um, do you want to do the, the full one or the shorter one? You pick. All right. We'll do the full one. Five, four, three, two. One, zero, liftoff, liftoff, 30 minutes after the hour. It's just beautiful. <laughs> you know, I've been getting, I have a liftoff account. I opened one for my wife and I, opened one for each of my kids, and I've been getting a lot of emails this year from liftoff about tax loss harvesting opportunities. See, so there's a positive spin there. If you want to learn more about liftoff, we actually have an advisor who, who works there. We have a few advisors who can help. So if you want an automated investing platform, with an advisor who can, you can ask questions to, go to liftoffinvest.com. All right, uh, John, throw up my first chart of the day here. This is just the S&P. This is a little stale now that the stocks have gone down more, but this is I posted this about a week ago, and this is just this year for the S&P 500. You can see we've had a ton of down, up, down, up, down, up, and all these, these different changes and a lot of volatility. And I posted this, and Andrew on Twitter responded with this following question. John, throw it up there. Ben, any precedent for this? Or is this typical pain in a bear market? It's my first, can you tell? So this guy, Andrew, is living through his first bear market. And yes, there's plenty of precedent for this. Bear markets are painful. They're volatile. They test your discipline and your intestinal fortitude as a long-term investor. But here's the thing. If you're a young investor and this is your very first bear market, today's situation for you is far better than things were 9, 12, 18 months ago. The S&P 500 is now down a little more than 20%. Russell 2000, small cap stocks is down almost 30%. The NASDAQ 100 is down more than 30%. Prices are on sale. And not only are prices lower, but you can find some yield on your cash for once. For years, the, the most asked question we got on Animal Spirits and some of our other uh, platforms where we had email were, what am I supposed to do with my cash savings? I'm earning zero yield. I want to save her for a wedding. I want to save for a house. I want to just have my emergency fund, but I'm earning nothing in cash. There's no yield. Guess what? You can find there is some yield in your cash. One and two-year treasuries are yielding 4%. That means higher interest rates on your savings account, your CDs, short-term bond funds. Duncan, when I used to get my hair cut in high school, I went to a proper barber shop, old school, four chairs, and lots of good conversation, but it was slow. And every time I went in, right in my schedule, I'd have a scheduled time. My old bar barber, Robert, uh, Roger, would say, hey, Ben, sorry, service is down, but the quality's up. Every time without fail. And I'd have to wait 20 to 30 minutes until he was done talking to someone. Great conversation. And then I'd, I'd sit in the corner and read a Sports Illustrated, you know, before, this is before cell phones. I think it's similar today in the in the financial markets, especially for young people. Prices are down, but expected returns are up, right? That service is down, but the quality's up. If you're a young person in your 20s or 30s, you can expect to live through, I don't know, seven to eight brutal bear markets, maybe two to three like extreme bone-crushing crashes, maybe more, maybe less. But bear markets are great for people making regular contributions because it means valuations are down, dividend yields are up. And this time, bond yields are up. Usually in a bear market, bond yields are down because bonds typically go up when stocks go down. This time, it's not happening that way. Listen, every bear market is unique in its own way. This one is different that way because maybe rising rates are causing the stock bear market. But the emotions you feel during every bear market are the same because human nature is the one constant. So how do you survive these bear markets? I think especially for young people, it's just you have to automate. You put your contributions on autopilot. You rebalance periodically but make it automatic. And then each year, you increase the amount you save. And for God's sake... Don't worry about days and months in the market when you're in your 20s. Worry about decades because that's your that's your time horizon. Yeah, fair. That makes sense. Good advice. 
I also I recently got my hair cut and uh, I I went to two places and they were both completely full. The third one had no one in it, and uh, it was a bad bad idea. The, the barber <laughs> was like a crazy person, but um, that's uh, they, they cut yeah. my hair. So there's no line for a reason. Okay, yeah. that's right. My my wife finally made me after the last couple of years stop getting my haircut at Great Clips for nine ninety nine. Hey, I mean that's a good deal. It's a good deal. All right, got to save some. I'm probably double that now. All right, let's do a question from a viewer. Okay, so up first we have a question from Wes. In previous shows, I've heard you and Michael, Michael Batnick mention that you lease your vehicles. Would you be able to elaborate on when you think leasing a vehicle is most appropriate? Conventional financial wisdom says that cars are always viewed as liabilities, and this same wisdom almost frowns upon leasing a car. For context, I'm a recent college graduate with a great job who's moved from California to Colorado, where I'm contemplating buying a more expensive car that is suitable for the snow. I regularly contribute to my retirement accounts, but I do already have a car payment, student loans, and rent. I want to make sure I'm making a smart financial move if I choose to upgrade my car. All right. So one of the first things you need to learn as a young person budgeting-wise is fixed expenses matter way more than variable expenses. It's not your lattes and your eating out that matters. It's your fixed expenses. So that means for most people, the biggest ones are going to be housing and transportation. So John, throw up this, this tweet from this week from Car Dealership Guy. Uh, new record this week. Percentage of consumers who financed a new car with a monthly payment over $1,000. So in June 2019, it was a little under 5%. Now it's fast approaching 13%. $1,000 for their monthly payment, which is just insane to me. And, and I get how it happens because car prices are way up. People buy these huge SUVs that's and trucks. That's a hefty trucks. payment. Yeah. It's, it's huge. So that's the th- and that's a fixed payment. And that doesn't include things like insurance and gas and all these other ancillary costs that come with owning a car. So it, it, it and and the price of a car, I know it's, they've gone up in recent years, but most of the time that's a depreciating asset. So as a fin- personal finance guy, I never thought I would have leased my my automobile, but I did my first lease in 2015 because it was a great deal, thinking I could simply buy it when the contract ran up, back when there actually were good deals on cars. And so I, I personally leased my Ford Explorer and have been leasing ever since then. And my off- here's here's some of the reasons why I, I personally lease, and I think this is circumstantial. So my office is like four miles from my house, so I don't put a ton of mileage on the car. I have three kids aged eight and under, and kids destroy the interior of a car. Peanuts and Cheerios and goldfish everywhere. Uh, I would rather have the, the dealership take on that 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 destruction. Uh, the payment is lower. Sure, I'll never go without a car payment, but it's a reasonable level, so I don't, I don't really mind it. Uh, I've had a lot of ex- bad experiences with used cars over the over my lifetime. I've replaced transmissions, alternators, brake pads, brakes, tires, you name it. I've probably replaced it. Uh, call me crazy, but I enjoy driving a new vehicle once every 36 months or so. The, the technology gets better. I don't think you can really beat the new car smell. That That's, that's kind of hard to beat. Uh, I don't that's, know that's worth, worth the payment alone, paying. right? That new yeah. car smell. But listen, leasing a car is certainly not for everyone. Those are my reasons. But if you want to run the numbers, there's this guy who uh, emailed us in a while ago and said, hey, guy's name is Jesse Kramer. He has a uh, blog called The Best Interest. And he wrote a fantastic blog post called The True Cost of Car Ownership. And so he actually ran the numbers to figure out, if you want to figure out buy versus lease, here's the things that you should run the numbers on. Again, because a lot of it's circumstantial. So first of all, it's how long you plan to drive the car and how far you drive it. He said depreciation is by far the biggest expense. So you can assume the car drops by 10% immediately driving it off the lot, and then like an additional 10% each year for the next five years. Now, most new new cars are covered for 36 months under warranty and maintenance, and after that, you're on your own. So the cost of repairing an older car is estimated to be twice the amount for a new car. That, that's part of the reason that I lease. 
Uh, you also have to factor in the cost of fuel registration insurance. He says the co- average cost of owning a car is something in the range of 35 to 65 cents per mile over the life of the vehicle. So per mile driven. And so assuming a car can last 15 years and go 200,000 miles, that would bring the cost of a $30,000 car to like 90,000 over the life of it. If you add everything up, repairs, gas, insurance, maintenance, all this stuff. So he says that the, the premium for leasing is about 5% per mile, uh, but you take the catastrophic thing off the table where if you wreck the car and something goes really wrong, they'll, they'll take care of it. So I think the biggest things you have to figure out is how long do you want to drive the car for? How many miles a year do you drive it for? So if you're putting on 15, 20,000 miles a year, leasing doesn't make sense. If you want to trade up every few years, some people do, some people don't, it doesn't make sense to buy if you're going to trade up. And do you care if you have a car payment? Because the great thing about buying is once it's paid off, if you pay off in cash or just pay it off after three, four or five years of your term of your loan, then you don't have a car payment as long as you drive it. So I say no right or wrong answers here. I don't think that there there is like a black and white. A lot of like most things is pretty circumstantial. Depends on how much you want to drive it. Also, uh, I was just going to mention Jesse's often in the in the chat here on our very videos. I don't see him today, but so um, good Twitter follow. So go uh, go check out check out Jesse's stuff. Yeah, sharp guy. All right, let's. Uh, and Duncan, you should do a poll. Uh, own versus lease in the thing here. Like, you, I don't know how to do the polls. You do it. Yeah, but, I, uh, I already did one actually. Uh, oh, you did it. Okay. Let me see if I can find what the result was. All right, I'll look for that. I'll look for that while you're talking next. All right, let's um, do another one. All right, so up next, we have a question from Brandon. By the way, they just did an announcement that they're about to start vote testing, so we'll see. Um, All right. Duncan's <laughs> dealing with a, a fire alarm drill today, so yeah. if we hear anything in the background, that's uh, that's why. It's always yeah. something. Yeah. Uh, okay, so up, up uh, next, we have a question from Brandon. I'm 24, single, and have no kids. I'm currently hell-bent on trying to buy a house with cash early in my life. I have $63,000 in my 401k, $21,000 in my IRA, $5,000 in crypto, and $67,000 in a brokerage account. I also have $130,000 in cash on the sidelines. There's cash on the sidelines. Everyone's always talking about. Um, my only debt is $15,000 of student debt, and payments aren't due until January, and the interest rate's 4.4%. Due to my income being high and living in a fairly inexpensive area, buying a house with cash is very realistic in four to six months. Uh, I'm I'm currently paying $950 a month in rent and my expenses are relatively low. That being said, I'm conflicted. Should I stay on this path or should I put a lot more into the market? My 401k and IRA are maxed out for the year, but at current prices, it's a solid solid buying opportunity in my brokerage account with the cash I'm sitting on. At the same time, the psychological satisfaction of being mortgage-free would be great and the saved income in the future may fuel my retirement faster. How would you handle this? All right, this is our not to brag of the week for sure. Yeah, this is 24 years old, doing really well. Also, imagine how much that crypto was back like a year and a half ago. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, it used to be 20, now it's five. Uh, We get a lot of housing-related questions here at the compound. Paying for a house in cash is obviously rare, but it's certainly a question we've gotten before. The interesting thing to me here is my advice now versus nine to 12 months ago is totally different because mortgage rates. So John, throw up the the mortgage rate. So this is Mortgage News Daily, publishes these daily. So you can see that as of yesterday, 30-year fixed is, is approaching six and a half percent. You can see, but they showed the 52 week range. There's a low of three. So I think a year ago you could have gotten a, a 30 year mortgage for like 2.9, 3%. And man, it's just brutal when you th- think of that. Uh, so I think if Brandon would have asked this question on mortgage rates, the 3%, I would have said he's nuts. Why would you pay for cat? Why would you pay cash when you have a 3% mortgage that is, that is going to be eaten away by inflation. And that's such a low hurdle rate. Plus it's, you know, you have interest deduction you can take off. So now with mortgage rate at 7%, that's a much higher hurdle rate. I think it actually makes more sense. So I guess the biggest worry here would be, am I going to miss out on some compounding in the stock market? 
Now, obviously, with the mortgage, you know exactly what that return is going to be. No one knows what it's going to be in the stock market. Houses are liquid, but you could also, you could always, if you paid it in cash, you could always take a mortgage out or home equity line of credit in the future if you need to, if maybe if rates come back down, that makes sense. And I, I guess the other question is how comfortable are you locking up that much cash in your home? That, that, that takes your diversification down significantly. Um, one of the things we talk about here a lot is, is regret minimization. So maybe Brandon has thought about, I don't know, pay 50% in cash for the house and, and invest the other 50% and split the difference somehow. There are some benefits to paying with cash. It, it puts you in a much better bargaining position. I talked a few months ago, Duncan, how I sold, a, sold an investment property earlier this summer. The person who bought it from us bought in cash. And boy, not to pat myself on the back here, but I'm pretty sure I top-ticked the market when I sold that. But the person who bought it bought it in cash, and it was so much easier. There's no banks to deal with. There's no credit agencies to deal with. There's no back and forth on paperwork. When you pay in cash, you don't have to deal with any of that stuff. So the bargaining power goes up immediately because the other side doesn't have to deal as much with the bank. So it's not as much of a headache. And obviously, having a house fully paid off at 24 puts you in a unique position. Brandon says he's single. What happens if down the road, Brandon gets a spouse? And that spouse says, you bought this house for how much? And I don't like it. I want to be in a different one. Maybe Brandon could rent it out. And that income could help pay for the new mortgage or sell it at a profit, maybe. Uh, so the good news is that they're in a great financial position. I think no matter what you do here, you're going to be fine at 24, especially if you continue maxing out that 401k and IRA. I, I did a little back of the envelope here for Brandon. So if he's maxing out 401k, that's $20,500 a year right now. IRA is 6000 Those limits will change over time, but let's assume they don't. Let's assume Brandon at 24 just continues to save that much every year. Nothing else. So that's $26,500 from age 24 to age 60. Let's say you're in 7% a year on that. What does he end up with, Duncan? I, I got to be 60. honest, the firearm's going off, so sorry, I wasn't following. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. That's yeah, not that loud. If he did that every year at a 7% uh, annual return, he's going to have like $4 million by age 60. So I'd say don't stress too much about this decision either way. You're going to be fine. Go with a more psychologically pleasing answer. But either way, if you keep saving, you're going to be fine. So if you're worried about the stock market that much, you're 24 and you're still maxing out your retirement accounts and you want to pay for the house in cash, I think you're going to be fine as long as you keep saving. Do you think Do you think that's a common goal for people that young to like want to buy a house in cash? I don't even think that had ever crossed no. my mind. Well, we we talked to that, that, that person a few weeks ago emailed from Missouri and they were paying like $300 a month in rent. I think a lot of people here would be surprised to know that you could buy a house in cash for that much and there are still places that are relatively affordable. But uh, yeah, so, so obviously this is, this is a very rare position, but I think with their finances so well in their mid-20s, they're probably going to be fine either way. Just yeah. keep saving. Yeah, I'd say so. All right. That's not too loud, right? You can... That's just them talking now. <laughs> it sounds like you're at an airport. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, uh, so up next, we have... I took advantage of a large dip and just opened a position in a market favorite, NVIDIA, with the intention of holding for 10 to 20 years. I'm writing far out of the money calls and returning the premium, less a portion for taxes to the position each week. As a first-time options trader, this seems too easy. What am I missing? What's the catch? Thanks. And can we get a, a TCAF hoodie in black? I have good news. Uh, I have Well, the bad news is I have no idea what you're talking about with options. The good news is we just added the black hoodie back to the shop. So your, your wish is granted. Uh -huh. We also have a forest green one. So hey, yeah, you, you know something about options. Do you know what OTM meant? That's yes, the first yeah. abbreviation no, no, you've, no, no, you've I, known about. Trust me, I've lost plenty of money in options. But, <laughs> yeah. I, I said on Animal Spirits this week, I've actually never 
oh, I guess it's for a future show. We talked. I've never traded an option in my life for some reason. Oh man! So yeah. let's look at the textbook definition here. So a call option gives the holder of that option the right, but not the obligation, to buy a security at a predetermined price. Right? That's if you buy the option. Now, if you're a seller of the option, like this person or a writer, I don't know why they call it writing. It's finance speak, I guess. Uh, you're giving the buyer the option to buy your shares at a predetermined price. That seems like a free lunch, right? Write those calls far out of the money, especially with a stock like NVIDIA that's so volatile, you're probably going to earn some pretty good premiums. Earn that sweet premium, and it feels like you're paying yourself an extra dividend stream, basically. So what's the downside? Well, the downside is you want to hold this stock for 10 to 20 years. The downside is you could get taken out of these shares, right? You're obligated to sell those those shares at the strike price if it should hit. Now, options are... Option prices are based on a number of different variables, but one of the biggest variables is volatility. And generally speaking, the higher the volatility, the higher the price of the option. So for you, that's good because you're earning more income. But that could be bad because the stock trades a lot. So John, throw up this chart of NVIDIA calendar year returns. This this chart is just insane. Every single year for the past 12 years for NVIDIA since 2012 has been a double-digit gain or loss. And Six of the last eight years saw gains of 65% or more on a calendar year basis. Three of the last seven saw gains of 100% or more. And of course, this year, it's down 55%. 2018, it was down 31%. 2012, it was down 11%. I guess that's what happens with a stock that's up so much. Uh, So your risk is that you rate some call options and the stock breaks through those levels and causing you to sell the shares. I guess you have to ask yourself, is the amount of income I'm earning on that worth the hassle? Is it, it, does it, you know, tax-wise, making more purchases, wanting to keep your your position at a specific size. So that's the cost-benefit there. Is is the income stream I'm getting really worth the hassle of having to go through this and potentially buy back more shares if you want to keep that position where it is if you're going to be a holder for 10 to 20 years? Yeah, I, I, to me, it's just, yeah, it's hilarious. The options, I, every time I buy an option, it moves against me like immediately. <laughs> it's like I could probably harness that intuition and actually like use it somehow to make money in the stock market. George Costanza, do but, the yeah. opposite. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, every time, every time. It's I mean, awful. I think for most people, trading options is kind of like gambling on sports because the great thing about it is you know exactly what you're going to get. It's like a parlay, basically, right? You, you could put a little bit of money up, and if it if it's right, you earn a bunch of money. If it's wrong, you just lose what you put up, right? I think that's the way people, most people these days in retail probably look at options, whereas professionals are looking at them more as a risk management tool and hedging and, and all these sorts of things. But uh, it sounds like this person is actually looking at them for income. Yeah, no, I, it sounds like whatever they're doing is yeah, working so far. Hopefully it continues to work for them. And, and maybe that income is helping for NVIDIA shares continuing to fall and get slotted this year. Right, yeah. All right, next question. Okay, up next we have a question from Christy. My husband and I are 34 and 40 years old, healthy, and planning on starting our family. We don't own a home yet, but hope to buy in two to three years. We have about $100,000 in assets between vehicles, retirement, and savings. As we start our family, should we set up a last will or a living trust estate plan? Uh, what do you think is better for this particular point in our lives and why? Okay, hopefully Christy and her husband will have a chance to buy houses at much lower prices if the Fed keeps raising rates. Uh, but let's bring in an estate planning expert here, Taylor Hollis from Ritholt Wealth. It's been on the show before. Hey, Taylor's Taylor. worked for the states. Hello. In her before. All right, so Christy and her husband do not have a family yet, but they're looking to start one soon. They, they're getting ahead of the game here, I think. So what, what, are they, what are they thinking about in terms of estate planning? When, when do you need to start thinking about this as a, as a young person? Yeah, um, I think the sooner the better. I mean, typically, even if you're you're not married, um, if you have any assets at all to your name, I think it always makes sense to have some sort of basic will in place um, just to give you control over what happens to those assets if you pass away. Um, 
you know, their question in particular is asking about the difference between, you know, setting up a living trust or just a basic will. Um, I think that a living trust, which is also known as a revocable trust, is typically, in most cases, um, set up for two reasons. One, if there's a privacy concern, and two, to avoid probate and the estate settlement court, um, and specifically if you have property in multiple states. So, so is that, are those people, concerns mostly for people who have a lot of money and a lot of assets then? Typically, yeah, just more complex. It's, it's just the more complex situation. Typically, a living trust would make more sense. In their case, it sounds like a will can definitely accomplish what they need it to. And the good news, a lot of people think they don't need to um, set up a will until they have kids or until they own a home or whatever it might be. But typically, attorneys can write the will in a way that covers all those future plans. So it'll cover your future children. You can go ahead and factor all those things in now um, so that you're not having to redo it. What's the simplest way for people to do this if they don't have a lawyer on call or something? How, how do people even go about this these days? Um, I always defer to hiring an attorney for this. You can find attorneys these days that um, specialize in these simpler cases. Um, most people think they don't need an attorney if they do have a fairly simple situation and they're like, can I just go on LegalZoom and do this? And technically, yes, probably you could, but um, just... As a professional, I always prefer people to actually work with an attorney on it, and I think it's going to be less expensive than people may think if they find the right person. Okay, that makes sense. All right, Duncan, yeah. one more question. Yeah, last but not least, I think the firearm's done. I think we did it. We made it. We made it. <laughs> Way to go. The loudest part of it I think I was on mute for, so yeah. Uh, okay, so last but not least, we have a question from Jason. I'm a 37-year-old single male with $385,000 in my retirement accounts, $277 in my current company 401k, and $117 in my rollover IRA. I hope to be with my current company for many years to come. They have a 401k match of 100% up to 10%. That's really good, right? Up to 10%, yeah. 10% right. a really good match. Yeah, yes. really good. Uh, I maxed out my 401k in 2021, and I'm currently doing a mega backdoor Roth conversion, uh, calling an extra $35,000 over, uh, over the max over a two-year span. After some due diligence, is that DD? After some, I think that's what we're looking for. Some yep. due diligence on my, rollover, today, yeah, on my rollover IRA is underperformed by roughly 7% compared to S&P, and I'm paying professional fees of about $1,000 a year to Fidelity. I'm thinking I should take control and throw it all in a low-cost S&P fund and call it a day. Or considering I can only contribute $6,000 a year into this and will be contributing much more in my 401k, I could be more aggressive. Perhaps a mixture of S&P and also mid and small cap exposure? Would love your insights. A lot going on here. Now, sometimes we have to shorten these questions. This, this person also did ask, just generally, how am I doing for retirement here? Because they gave us a lot of information. And I think how am I doing is pretty much the only question that matters for the majority of people who are saving, if you're not uber wealthy, right? If you don't have a ton of money, just, just F you money. I think a lot of people want to know just how they're doing. I think Jason is doing pretty good for the amount of money they saved and they're by themselves and, and they're getting this huge max. So the, the question is, it, it sounds like they're on the right path, but they're just unsure. And I think that happens to a lot of people, Taylor, right? Is because there's so many options out there I could be using an advisor. I could be having a different asset allocation. I could be using different funds. I could be. I think for a lot of people, it's tempting to always think there's got to be more out there. What am I? What am I not doing? What could I be doing differently? So, how do you help someone sort through all this stuff when they they have six figures saved, 
they sounds like a pretty good plan. They're a pretty good saver, but then they need to take that extra step to make sure, like, is everything I'm doing, am I going to be okay? Right, right. Yep. Very common question. A lot of FOMO, I think, baked into that for sure. Um, you know, it, he might not like this answer, but my first response to his question is, what are your goals? You're young, you're an aggressive saver, you have a good pool of assets built up. Are you trying to retire early? Are you trying to be able to start your own business? Like, what's the end goal? And then let's work backwards from there, both in terms of, you know, your saving, which obviously you're doing a great job of, but especially, you know, your asset allocation and the investment plan. Um, and I think that taking a holistic approach um, obviously makes a lot of sense. There's, I think there's some mental accounting happening here. You know, he mentioned, should my rollover IRA be more aggressive because it's smaller and I'm putting less into it? Um, to me, that doesn't necessarily matter and it should be viewed all together. I think if anything, your Roth component that you're building up through these mega backdoor contributions should be your most aggressive because you're, you know, theoretically never have to take money out of that. So in just a basic sense, we typically like to see the Roth as the more aggressive bucket. Um, and then my next question in terms of his concerns on performance would be, well, what was it invested in that caused it to underperform? But again, I think coming back to what your end goal is, what you're trying to accomplish is going to help you set an appropriate benchmark for yourself instead of just the market. I feel like mega backdoor Roth is kind of like the sizes at Starbucks. Like, can we just call it a large, <laughs> a large Roth? Right. Con- conversion it's like it's like a venti this is like a venti roth ira i don't know someone uh, did some good branding on that strategy yes I, I, it does yeah. sound it's found it sounds like you're doing a lot with it your sounds money like transformers. I, I think, so he yeah. said that he's he's paying an advisor to help him and he, he's underperforming and i think maybe the question for that advisor is kind of not why am i underperforming it could be it could just be because they're maybe they're invested in international funds and international funds are doing worse than the s p it's it's can you help me put together an asset allocation that i can live with that I won't mm-hmm. question all the time. So maybe that's the question. If that if that advisor can't do it for you, maybe you got to find a new one or, or come up with something on your own. But that's the thing for most people is there, there is no such thing as a perfect asset asset allocation. It's what's the asset allocation that I can stick with that I'm not going to tinker with. I'm not going to leave it alone. It, what's the I think the old saying William Bernstein said it like asset allocation is like a piece of piece of soap. The more you use it and fondle it and touch it, the smaller it's going to get. Right. That's the same thing with your portfolio. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to use the word fondle. That that. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, but, but, but I think we talked last week, too, for younger people in your 30s. If, if this person doesn't have a really complicated situation, maybe they don't even need an advisor, as long as they can figure out an allocation. And, and the other thing is maybe you go backwards and go to a target date fund and let someone else handle that for you, and you don't have to think about it anymore. Right. I, I think it sounds like he's doing all the right things. He's doing the things he's control, in control of, and that's saving a lot of money. Again, determine what the what the purpose is, what the goal is, because with all of his savings, it sounds to me like maybe he wants to retire early, um, or have some yeah. And that's that's the question in terms of how am I doing? You're right. Like focusing on what you can control and saving mm-hmm. is for the most people that's the biggest piece. Like right now, no yep. one we can't control the Fed, we can't control interest rates, we can't control the stock market, and all that stuff is completely out of our control. Tax rates, none of that. But if if you can actually increase your savings in a time like this, that's pretty good. So I think. As far as I'm concerned, they're doing they're doing pretty good. I, I was Agreed. laughing because Toby in the chat said, "I hope this guy finds a way to make ends meet." <laughs> <laughs> everyone everyone has their cross to bear here. We're uh, listen. We, we get pe- we get a wide range of questions from people, and uh, I, I know it is easy to judge people, but they're listen. 
I think we have people who have Jason will uh, laugh at that. He'll find that funny. But yes, but but we have we have people who have ten figures uh, in assets, and they they constantly check their portfolio and they're worried about it. And one of the things that I say is like, if you're still worried about your money, you're probably not wealthy in, in that sense. So. I think for a lot of people, it's not the numbers so much that make sense. It's it's how they feel relative to their circumstances and all these things, and it's uh, it's tough. So, anyway, I think everyone everyone in the questions today is doing a good job, right? Yeah. No, we had some great ones. Keep them coming. And now that we're not doing uh, viewer topics on what are your thoughts, we've made um, portfolio rescue that much more valuable. This is this is the place you come to have your questions answered. It's a premium show, Duncan. Yeah, we're a premium premium show now. All right. We want to thank Taylor Hollis again for joining us. Thanks, Taylor from Nashville, Tennessee. We appreciate that. Thanks to That's everyone right. who's watching live in the chat. We appreciate you all. Uh, see you in podcast form. Leave us a review. If you're on YouTube, leave us a comment, a question in the uh, comment section. If you want some compound work, Duncan just said, breaking news, a new Compound and Friends sweatshirt, black sweatshirt, now available? It's Yeah, it's the same sweatshirt design, but yeah, we now have it. We had it in white for the summer. Now it's black, and we have a forest green one. Very cool. All right, we'll have a new Compound and Friends tomorrow. Is that right? Right. We're doing it live from Market Watch's festival today, and so it's going to be basically the program feed from that. Lots of live shows lately. Remember, if you have a question, email us, askthecompoundshow at gmail.com, and we will see you next week. See you, everyone. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is brought to you by Ritholtz Wealth Management. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities mentioned on this podcast. If you're new to investing, check out liftoffinvest.com to get started with us today.